0: this is chapter 15 of roughing it this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org roughing it by mark twain chapter 15 it is a luscious country for thrilling evening stories about assassinations of intractable gentiles I cannot easily conceive of anything more cosy than the night in Salt Lake which we spent in a gentile den, smoking pipes and listening to tales of how Burton galloped in among the pleading and defenseless Morricites, and shot them down, men and women, like so many dogs, and how Bill Hickman, a destroying angel, shot Drown and Arnold dead, for bringing suit against him for a debt and how Porter Rockwell did this and that dreadful thing, and how heedless people often come to Utah and make remarks about Brigham, or polygamy, or some other sacred matter, and the very next morning at daylight such parties are sure to be found lying up some back alley, contentedly waiting for the hearse. And the next most interesting thing is to sit and listen to these Gentiles talk about polygamy. And how some portly old frog of an elder, or a bishop, marries a girl, likes her, marries her sister, likes her, marries another sister, likes her, takes another, likes her, marries her mother, likes her, marries her father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and then comes back hungry and asks for more. And how the pert young thing of eleven will chance to be the favorite wife, and her own venerable grandmother, have to rank away down toward d four in their mutual husband's esteem and have to sleep in the kitchen as like as not and how this dreadful sort of thing this hiving together in one foul nest of mother and daughters and the making a young daughter superior to her own mother in rank and authority are things which mormon women submit to because their religion teaches them that the more wives a man has on earth and the more children he rears the higher place they will all have in the world to come, and the warmer, maybe, though they do not seem to say anything about that. According to these gentile friends of ours, Brigham Young's harem contains twenty or thirty wives. They said that some of them had grown old and gone out of active service, but were comfortably housed and cared for in the henry uh, or the lion-house, as it is strangely named. Along with each wife were her children, fifty altogether. The house was perfectly quiet and orderly when the children were still. They all took their meals in one room, and a happy and homelike sight it was pronounced to be. None of our party got an opportunity to take dinner with Mr. Young, but a Gentile by the name of Johnson professed to have enjoyed a sociable breakfast in the Lion House. He gave a preposterous account of the calling of the roll, and other preliminaries, and the carnage that ensued when the buckwheat cakes came in but he embellished rather too much. He said that Mr. Young told him several smart sayings of certain of his two-year-olds, observing with some pride that for many years he had been the heaviest contributor in that line to one of the Eastern magazines, and then he wanted to show Mr. Johnson one of the pets that had said the last good thing, but he could not find the child. He searched the faces of the children in detail, but could not decide which one it was. Finally he gave it up with a sigh, and said, I thought I would know the little cub again, but I don't. Mr. Johnson said further that Mr. Young observed that life was a sad, sad thing because the joy of every new marriage a man contracted was so apt to be blighted by the inopportune funeral of a less recent bride. And Mr. Johnson said that while he and Mr. Young were pleasantly conversing in private, one of the Mrs. Youngs came in and demanded a breastpin, remarking that she had found out that he had been giving a breastpin to number six, and she, for one, did not propose to let this partiality go on without making a satisfactory amount of trouble about it. Mr. Young reminded her that there was a stranger present. Mrs. Young said that if the state of things inside the house was not agreeable to the stranger, he could find room outside. Mr. Young promised the breastpin, and she went away. But in a minute or two, another Mrs. Young came in and demanded a breastpin. Mr. Young began a remonstrance, but Mrs. Young cut him short. She said Number Six had got one, and Number Eleven was promised one, and it was no use for him to try to impose on her. She hoped she knew her rights. He gave his promise, and she went. And presently three Mrs. Youngs entered in a body, and opened on their husband a tempest of tears, abuse, and entreaty. They had heard all about Number Six, Number Eleven, and Number Fourteen. Three more breastpins were promised. They were hardly gone, when nine more Mrs. Youngs filed into the presence, and a new tempest burst forth, and raged round about the prophet and his guest. Nine breastpins were promised, and the weird sisters filed out again. And in came eleven more, weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. Eleven promised breastpins purchased peace once more. "'That is a specimen,' said Mr. Young. "'You see how it is. You see what a life I lead.' A man can't be wise all the time. In a heedless moment I gave my darling number six—excuse my calling her thus, as her other name has escaped me for the moment—a breast-pin. It was only worth twenty-five dollars—that is, apparently that was its whole cost—but its ultimate cost was inevitably bound to be a good deal more. You yourself have seen it climb up to six hundred and fifty dollars. And, alas, even that is not the end for I have wives all over this territory of Utah. I have dozens of wives whose numbers even I do not know without looking in the family bible. They are scattered far and wide among the mountains and valleys of my realm. And mark you, every solitary one of them will hear of this wretched breastpin, and every last one of them will have one or die. Number six's breastpin will cost me twenty-five hundred dollars before I see the end of it and these creatures will compare these pins together, and if one is a shade finer than the rest, they will all be thrown on my hands, and I will have to order a new lot to keep peace in the family. Sir, you probably did not know it, but all the time you were present with my children, your every movement was watched by vigilant servitors of mine. If you had offered to give a child a dime, or a stick of candy, or any trifle of the kind, you would have been snatched out of the house instantly Provided it could be done before your gift left your hand. Otherwise, it would be absolutely necessary for you to make an exactly similar gift to all my children. And knowing by experience the importance of the thing, I would have stood by and seen to it myself that you did it, and did it thoroughly. Once a gentleman gave one of my children a tin whistle, a veritable invention of Satan, sir, and one which I have an unspeakable horror of, and so would you if you had eighty or ninety children in your house. But the deed was done. The man escaped. I knew what the result was going to be, and I thirsted for vengeance. I ordered out a flock of destroying angels, and they hunted the man far into the fastnesses of the Nevada mountains. But they never caught him. I am not cruel, sir. I am not vindictive, except when sorely outraged. But if I had caught him, sir, so help me Joseph Smith. I would have locked him into the nursery till the brats whistled him to death. By the slaughtered body of St. Parley Pratt, whom God assail, there was never anything on this earth like it. I knew who gave the whistle to the child, but I could not make those jealous mothers believe me. They believed I did it, and the result was just what any man of reflection could have foreseen. I had to order a hundred and ten whistles. I think we had a hundred and ten children in the house then, but some of them are off at college now. I had to order a hundred and ten of those shrieking things, and I wish I may never speak another word if we didn't have to talk on our fingers entirely, from that time forth until the children got tired of the whistles. And if ever another man gives a whistle to a child of mine, and I get my hands on him, I will hang him higher than Haman." That is the word with a bark on it. Shade of nephi. You don't know anything about married life. I am rich, and everybody knows it. I am benevolent, and everybody takes advantage of it. I have a strong fatherly instinct, and all the foundlings are foisted on me. Every time a woman wants to do well by her darling, she puzzles her brain to cipher out some scheme for getting it into my hands. Why, sir, a woman came here once, with a child of a curious, lifeless sort of complexion, and so had the woman, and swore that the child was mine and she my wife that I had married her at such and such a time, in such and such a place, but she had forgotten her number, and of course I could not remember her name. Well, sir, she called my attention to the fact that the child looked like me, and really it did seem to resemble me, a common thing in the territory, and, to cut the story short, I put it in my nursery, and she left. And by the ghost of Orson Hyde, when they came to wash the paint off that child, it was an Injun. Bless my soul! You don't know anything about married life. It is a perfect dog's life, sir, a perfect dog's life. You can't economize. It isn't possible. I have tried keeping one set of bridal attire for all occasions, but it is of no use. First you'll marry a combination of calico and consumption that's as thin as a rail, and next you'll get a creature that's nothing more than a dropsy in disguise, and then you've got to eke out that bridal dress with an old balloon that is the way it goes and think of the wash bill excuse these tears nine hundred and eighty-four pieces a week no sir there is no such a thing as economy in a family like mine why just the one item of cradles think of it and vermifuge soothing syrup teething rings and papa's watches for the babies to play with and things to scratch the furniture with and lucifer matches for them to eat and pieces of glass to cut themselves with. The item of glass alone would support your family, I venture to say, sir. Let me scrimp and squeeze all I can. I still can't get ahead as fast as I feel I ought to, with my opportunities. Bless you, sir, at a time when I had seventy-two wives in this house I groaned under the pressure of keeping thousands of dollars tied up in seventy-two bedsteads when the money ought to have been out at interest and I just sold out the whole stock, sir, at a sacrifice, and built a bedstead seven feet long and ninety-six feet wide. But it was a failure, sir. I could not sleep. It appeared to me that the whole seventy-two women snored at once. The roar was deafening. And then the danger of it. That was what I was looking at. They would all draw in their breath at once, and you could actually see the walls of the house suck in and then they would all exhale their breath at once, and you could see the walls swell out and strain, and hear the rafters crack and the shingles grind together. My friend, take an old man's advice, and don't encumber yourself with a large family. Mind, I tell you, don't do it. In a small family, and in a small family only, you will find that comfort and that peace of mind which are the best at last of the blessings this world is able to afford us and for the lack of which no accumulation of wealth and no acquisition of fame, power, and greatness can ever compensate us. Take my word for it, ten or eleven wives is all you need. Never go over it." Some instinct or other made me set this Johnson down as being unreliable, and yet he was a very entertaining person, and I doubt if some of the information he gave us could have been acquired from any other source. He was a pleasant contrast to those reticent Mormons. End of chapter 15